Welcome to the Production First Mindset, a podcast where we discuss the world of building code from the lab all the way to production. We explore the tactics, methodologies, and metrics used to drive real customer value by the engineering leaders actually doing it. I'm your host, Liran Chemovic, CTO and co-founder of Frugal. Today, we are going to be discussing cognitive computing in finance. With us is Jin Chan, Senior Vice President and Head of Cognitive Computing and IT Fellow at Fidelity Investments. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Jin Chan and I'm a Senior Vice President and Head of Cognitive Computing for Fidelity Investments and I'm also an IT Fellow there. I currently lead a team of software engineers uh, focused on conversational AI. I've been at Fidelity for about a dozen years. Um, previous to my current role, I led our original AWS cloud team and our digital platform API team. Career-wise, most recent to this, I was chief architect of State Street Global Markets, which is the capital markets arm of State Street Bank. Uh, most of what I did there was uh, work on uh, a foreign exchange institutional trading product that if you're in institutional finance, uh, you might have heard what's called FX Connect. When I left in 2009, I think we were doing about $100 billion in, in USD a day in volume. And I think uh, more recently, it's about a trillion dollars a day. That's awesome. So you've been in investments and tech for a long time now, and you've been for, at Fidelity, you've done a few roles. Tell us a bit, what's the role of tech within Fidelity? It's interesting. Fidelity has a great brand, and it's one of the few companies, the only other company that I worked at where I have a similar kind of psychological, emotional connection to is a short stint that I had at GE Aircraft Engines. And, and I'll tie this together and explain why. When I was at GE Aircraft Engines in the early 2000s, you know, even though I was in the technology group, everyone used to get together and we understood that we were making these commercial jet engines and that at any point in time, we could have our friends, family, ourselves, people that we care about taking off in these engines. So it was some serious stuff. You know, just even thinking about there's a particular commercial where uh, you have people uh, that work in the production plants wearing like their yellow vests and hard hats and watching one of the engines take off. Even talking about it gives me goosebumps. I can feel the hair on my arms uh, rise up. Fidelity is very similar in terms of the mission and the value that it has for the customer. It's really looking out for the customer and the financial health for all the different goals that people have. And I can tell you one quick story of when I first realized that the company had a soul uh, several years ago, early in my career, did something called double jacking, where you sit down and, and you can listen in with a call center rep in the call center, but you just can't say anything. So I spent a day uh, listening to these phone calls. And uh, aside from the fact that, you know, I was really want, felt bad because at the time our systems were so non-integrated and these reps really ended up becoming the human integrator of all these software systems. But there was a call that came in and I knew how the reps are being measured. We have a very, uh, we analyze a lot of data in our call centers. One of them is something called average call handling time. And we know that every rep is kind of measured by these metrics. And, you know, it's how do we service the customer quickly uh, and whatnot. And this lady came in, I'll never forget this conversation. She was in her mid to late 50s. Uh, she was a nurse. And her husband was uh, about a decade older in his 60s, and he had retired as a school teacher. 
and she was very concerned about her finances and their retirement plans. And as soon as I see, you know, this, the rep start to interact with her, you know, I noticed that her whole retirement, you know, she had said her, all of her retirement balance was only like $20,000. And, and I just froze in my head thinking, what is this guy going to say to her? You know, um, because there's not much you can do at that point in time with $20,000 in terms of retirement and in like a retirement balance. Um, he spent about an hour talking her through all the different options and explaining you know, all the different options and paths that she could take. And then from that moment on, I was like, wow, these people really care. Um, there are so many anecdotes like that. I remember going to um, a team event and we have a call center in New Hampshire, which is in the uh, northeast of the United States you know, a few hours drive, uh, and then you can hit Maine and, and Canada. And this one of the reps had such a long term relationship with this couple who were also teachers uh, out of California that when they retired, successfully, they bought a really nice RV. And then part of their plan, they actually surprised him on the facility uh, just to meet him in person. I was like, wow, that is amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's, that, that's not the only place that they were visiting. Yeah, that's definitely not the only place that they've gone, but you hear these anecdotes all the time and, you know, and, and where everything that I've been immersed in and from a culture perspective really comes down from the chairman and the chairwoman all the way down. And it's not just lip service. It's, it's for real. Everyone's very aware. Fidelity as a company, I think something like 30% of U.S. adults uh, working households has some sort of a relationship with Fidelity, either on the retail brokerage side or through a, a workplace plan. So the impact that we have to help people you know, save money for retirement, meet go goals for college or buying a house or you know, different life stages that they have, it's, it's a great company. So where does technology come in? You know, I think yeah, Fidelity is one of those companies that kind of doubles down on the technology investments. And we do a lot to try to incubate and organize our teams so that they're not working in this big corporate environment. And even though there's a structure of a large enterprise and all of these regulatory bodies, you know, as a financial service, you know, when you're a developer working on these teams, it feels like you're in like a small, you know, 20, 30 person startup, for example. How many engineers are there in Fidelity as a whole? A ton. I think Fidelity now has like 50,000 people as a company. And in the business unit that I'm in, which is personal investing, that's the retail sites, so that's fidelity.com, and on the website, the mobile apps as well, there's probably you know, close to 3,000 developers wow. uh, spread out across the, the US, uh, Ireland, and China, and India. That's impressive. That's a big part of the total headcount. Yeah, what's really kind of interesting, I think, is Fidelity as a company and my business unit in particular kind of bit the bullet on going agile early on. So we've been doing Scrum for several years and constantly evolving and optimizing the way that we're organized so that we can kind of maximize and leverage the goodness of, of Scrum while minimizing a lot of the um, organizational complexities that might come along with that. So. How does Scrum look in a financial regulated environment? I would say no different. Uh, once you get past the phase of having everyone kind of drink the Kool-Aid of Scrum, it's one of those things that I think having done Scrum both at Fidelity and in the early 2000s over at State Street as well, 
one of the things that I've noticed is that um, a lot of companies, when they first go to these agile practices, until you're immersed and practiced in it and get a muscle memory in it, you might adopt the terminology, you might adopt some of the, the rituals and the ceremonies and processes, but you still have this overreaching kind of command and control, bureaucratic planning pieces to that. Here, where we're at, we've successfully gone past that to the point where, you know, executing Scrum and being immersed in the, in the practice of that isn't, it's very second nature. So, you know, my group in particular, we're at the point where even our technology platform or the platform that my team builds, you know, it's based upon a technical capability model and those are aligned to business capability models. And then everything that we do from uh, Jira stories to planning is all based upon capabilities. So it's, you know, what are we building? What are we working on? Now, what you're working on is cognitive computing. So what's, what's cognitive computing at Fidelity? To be honest, that sounded like a really nice term to have when I first started up this group about five years ago. Uh, so uh, just a brief history, uh, five, approximately five, five and a half years ago. And I know the time frame of when we started the group because developer number two, I was developer number one, developer number two, um, a guy that works for us, uh, Chris, um, he had his uh, first child and only child, Chloe, right at the time that we started this group up. So, you know, there was a time when... We had from 2013-ish to maybe 2015 to 17, we had transitioned uh, from a non-services uh, type of architecture to uh, an SOA architecture, a service-oriented architecture, just like everybody else in the world, gone through the transition of you know, kind of unorganized XML as an interface to idiomatic SOAP as an interface, and then JSON uh, and API. So there was a time when... You know, I was running the API platform team, the AWS team, and then I had joined this internal project and uh, kind of saw that there was a need to kind of organize an integration that we had to a particular vendor just for virtual assistant kind of capabilities. So what we realized from that is that we needed to kind of apply a strategic pattern and look at what was important for us in terms of strategic assets. And it's fundamentally what it boils down to is making sure since we have such a breadth of coverage and, and a customer base to uh, utilize and look at our customer data, not just the data that sits you know, in a data store, but all the interactions that we have with our customer data as a strategic asset to be leveraged competitively. And in order to do that, we have to really protect it. And then at the same time, Five, six years ago, we had this very fast-moving field. You know, I think um, I heard something somewhere where they compare the innovation advances of AI and machine learning and then NLP and NLU, where it kind of diverged from the typical pacing that you would have seen with something like Moore's Law. And I think, you know, even if you look back two, three years ago, the gap is even widening and it's accelerating. You have billions of dollars and you know, th hundreds of thousands of, you know, super smart people in the open source world kind of evolving globally in this ecosystem of AI and machine learning. And you have the commercialization of that from startups to, you know, big, huge companies like Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon, and Google, of course. And then the barrier of entry to all of this coincided with this cloud transformation that the industry's gone through. So, 
you know, you can literally be a student somewhere right now in any university. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a tier one school. It doesn't have to be MIT. It could be anywhere, you know, and you could get a free student account on AWS and you can make something, you know, and then you can bootstrap it. One of the things that we did when we started this group several years ago was we took a learning kind of visit to Carnegie Mellon. And I remember one of the professors telling me, you know, yep, Uber just came into our machine learning lab and just hired everyone that was there, just gave them all jobs before they graduated, just en masse. So, so you know, what do we do with cognitive computing? So my, my group's really responsible for kind of enabling not all of it, but the conversational AI and machine learning capabilities that we're building internally, leveraging a lot of open source tooling as well, just like everybody else, but pulling that into the experience. So we have a platform that's responsible for building out the virtual assistant on fidelity.com, the website, also on net benefits, which is our 401k workplace investing site, both on the web and mobile. We do integrations into our IVR so that we can automate through NLP and conversational AI those types of uh, service interactions, and then also integrations into Alexa and Google Assistant, and then whatever else is going to come down. So. Awesome. Sounds pretty impressive. I'm wondering what's the biggest challenge you're facing as you're trying to bring in all this AI into the realm of finance and into the Fidelity IT systems? So I pair, uh, we have these things called powerful pairs, and it's not just powerful pairs, it's powerful groups. So I have I have peers of mine that lead uh, Center of Excellence around AI. I have peers that lead the product management, the business side of our platform. And I think the biggest challenge, aside from poaching, so one of the things that I've realized is, so my team has roughly a little bit over 80 people in my team. It started off, as I, as I mentioned before, five, six years ago as one person, me with a hat in my hand, begging for resources. And we slowly grew. And out of the 80 or so people, we only have two or three people that are classically trained. I think if you look back maybe 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen all the kind of data science specific or AI and machine learning specific kind of graduate programs and courses of studies that you have. So there are only a few people on my team that have, you know, master's degrees in artificial intelligence or data science and whatnot. Most of us kind of what we've been doing as a group is really coming from a architecture, hands-on software engineering perspective, you know, going through the evolution of all these technology trends. And then, you know, as soon as this group was formed, you know, a lot of us have been moving from traditional kind of cloud, front end, you know, Angular, Vue, JavaScript, TypeScript, Node, kind of Lambda development. A lot of them have been, and we've been accelerating the push to become uh, practical machine learning engineers. You know, so we might not be the ones to, you know, write the papers on a novel kind of uh, ML techniques, but uh, we know how to deploy the models and we understand them and how they can be applied. So in a sense, we're creating people with skill sets that I would say three, four years ago were kind of unicorns, but not so anymore. And we're pairing them up with, uh, you know, people that have legitimate PhDs from you know, Harvard, MIT, and Brown um, uh, on the data science side. And then uh, we're able to take, uh, bring those two together, those skill sets and resources together and, and really look at the domain space of what we're doing and say, hey, you know, how can we make this experience better for the customer? And what can we do to be able to service them better, to give them advice better uh, and whatnot? Sounds very impressive. And I have to wonder, what's the achievement that you're most proud of that your team has done? 
I would say um, I was thinking about this quite a bit, actually, and I'm going to anonymize the name. There are a couple of things. One of them is that we've done a lot as a group through a program that we have at Fidelity with partnering with a company called ReachHire. So we have uh, four people in our group who are female software engineers who took a break from their career to raise a child, for example. Some of them about five, six, seven years, and they come in through internships, and then we ended up hiring them. And that's been a fantastic experience. And it's just been personally super fulfilling for me because, you know, I'm a, you know, as we had talked before, I'm a first generation immigrant. I came here from South Korea when I was five, didn't speak the language. You know, my parents got divorced early on. My mom was a waitress in a Chinese restaurant. We were living in government housing, and then she saved up enough money to buy a super small carryout that was fortuitously located across the street from a GM assembly plant. So we got a ton of business. And then she flipped that to build a bigger restaurant, buy, start a bigger, bigger restaurant, and, you know, put me and my siblings through college and my older brother through medical school. So you know, being able to uh, provide that kind of bridge to these super smart, well-qualified software engineers has been has been awesome. Another thing that I would say is, you know, very on par with that in terms of, you know, personal pride that I have with what we've done as a group. There's a developer that we have, you know, Fidelity does a great job of partnering with all these organizations. So one of the partnerships was through Mass General Hospital, MGH. So they do internships with high-functioning autistic adults. So I was asked if I was interested. And so I was like, yeah, I'm interested. So I interviewed this kid. He really wasn't a kid. He was was a grown man who was uh, several years out of an undergrad in a mathematics degree. And I was like, hey, you know, going through the interview process, you know, what's your background? Do you like coding? Blah, blah, blah. He showed me what he had coded in JavaScript that simulated waves. And we got into this rabbit hole discussion of gravitational waves and and the struggles that he had on being able to simulate gravitational waves in JavaScript. And I was like, okay, you're hired. So at the time, he was working at the local YMCA. You know, he wasn't doing anything that was close to what his skills were. So as we brought him on, one of my team leads, this guy named Jerry, who we, you know, we worked at two companies for 20 years together, you know, really kind of put him under his wing. So, you know, our first team lunch, I remember going to Chinatown and this guy had these Bose noise canceling uh, headphones on and we're all sitting at this round table. And I told him, hey, I know your headphones aren't on because I don't see the light and I have those exact headphones. So why don't you take those headphones off? So, you know, that's that team lead, Jerry, and the whole team spent a lot of time kind of helping him to socialize and feel comfortable. And he's one of our smartest, most productive engineers now. And in the five years, so we hired him very early on, probably about four and a half years ago. In that time, he's gone from working at the YMCA, living in an apartment, to getting married, having a baby, and he just bought his first house like six months ago. So that's just, to me, that's something that makes working at a company like Fidelity, it's like, that's it really doesn't matter what we're doing you know just working with all these people and and the team that i have since even though we've grown to a size of 80 you know especially during this pandemic when everyone's on zoom you know we've had people get married have children you know get engaged um some that should get engaged because they've been living with their girlfriend for too long you know so but you know the people that i work with you know they're they're really you know we're friends so yeah Sounds amazing. I'm wondering what your team is going to think when they hear this episode. 
I'm wondering what they're going to think too, <laughs> to be honest. You know, we're, you know. Especially wondering about the person who's, who's been engaged for too long or should be engaged, you've said. Yeah, his name's Ben. I won't tell you what his last name is, but he, <laughs> he, he knows. I, I, I rib him a lot about this. So Yeah, so out of 80 people, we're going to figure out who's the Ben. Yeah, there's only one. He'll, he, he knows. So everyone knows who Ben is. Where I'm at personally in my career, you know, it's, it's really about just having as much fun as possible and just trying to reclaim that same experience. Like, you know, I started programming and the reason why I got into this field is on my 12th birthday, my mom saved up two and a half weeks worth of tips. Why do I know this? Because I just knew, you know, we were living in this government housing complex called Kettering Square in Kettering, Ohio, and she bought me a TI-99 4A. And that experience of writing your first program, I'm still chasing that experience, but now I'm doing it with people that I would like to have a beer with or, you know, go to lunch with or just hang out with. So, You've mentioned you've started coding when you were 12. And there is one question I ask all of my guests, which is what their most memorable bug. So I'm not going to ask how old are you now, but from 12 until now, what's the bug that you remember the most? Going back, well, with that TI-99 4A, when I first learned how to code BASIC, I couldn't figure out a way in BASIC to automate the ghosts moving by themselves. And that just drove me nuts. In fact, after talking to you now, after this, I might just go back, because I still have it. I might, I, might just, I might just plug it in, just do it for the hell of it. But um, I was actually thinking about this and a little bit. The thing, it really wasn't a bug per se, but it was an experience. And it was a challenging experience. And it's, it's one of, you know, everyone, a lot of people in their careers go through these moments where they kind of get forged in the fire of stress and expectation. And so I would say uh, back in 2002-ish, you know, the team that I had at State Street, we had this FX trading system that was mission critical that we, it was running hot, hot in two data centers. It was built in C and running on Solaris machines. And the front end was Visual Basic and Visual C++. And they only had the source code for the front end. <laughs> they didn't have source code for the server. And so I remember a voicemail that I got from uh, uh, an ex executive vice president on the business side, and was like, you know, you know, Jen, you know, we, we want you to come to this really important meeting, and you know, we make sure you're there. Click. And I have never talked to this person before on the business side ever. I'm like, okay. Um, so I show up there, and what they showed us was a printout on an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper that someone had photoshopped. One part of the Photoshop screen was part of our existing trading system, and three other sections were of competitors that we had. And they looked at me and there were about 15 people in this meeting and they said, we want you to build this FX limit trading system. Can you do it? And my only response that I could think of was yes. <laughs> and so in about six weeks, uh, we ported over the client, reverse engineered the protocol. Uh, we got a working implementation running. Um, I didn't sleep much at the time. My family didn't see much, much of me at the time. Um, but that experience, I just remember you know, me and five other people just pounding the keyboards, just making something from scratch that could talk the protocol of this existing system so that the clients on the existing system could interact with this new system and not know that their counterparties were on this new system and vice versa and restricting functionality. 
it was the most intense kind of coding kind of experience that I've been in terms of a time compression. But out of that, you know, I it's one of those experiences where you make light, lifelong friends. So, you know, uh, since, you know, I, as I mentioned, I've been at Fidelity like 12 years now. Uh, four or five of the people that I worked with on that team, I've pulled over from State Street and I'm working with them now. So Amazing story. Well, Jin, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Sure, thank you. It's great to meet you. Yeah, you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's a wrap on another episode of the Production First Mindset. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Let us know what you think of the show and reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Production First. Thanks again for joining us.